Philippians. If you're visiting with us, we've been going through the book of Philippians. On Sunday mornings, we're in chapter 4, the last chapter of this fairly short epistle. One thing that has been emphasized in this prison epistle, in this powerful epistle, is that, first of all, we're to rejoice in the Lord. That's the whole theme of the book, and, and we can learn about joyous living. But as we also have seen, as we finished chapter 3 last week, that we are instructed also to grow in the Lord. We are to press on to, towards the goal of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, for our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only are we being told to rejoice in the Lord and to grow in the Lord, but as we move into chapter 4 here, we're going to be told that we are to stand fast in the Lord. So let's pray before we read uh, the first verse of chapter 4 as, Lord, we come. And, and what a privilege it is for us to come and hear your word, to hear truth. Uh, it is a privilege for us to come together and to take of communion, to remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us so that we can have this living hope, that we can belong to this new covenant, a covenant of relationship and intimacy with you. And Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, as we hear your word, help us through the work of your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God that dwells in our hearts, to be able to rejoice in you, even in the difficulties. And Lord, to stand fast, to keep pressing on. And so, Lord, we need you desperately, not only to teach us, but to empower us. May we take these things and have them worked out in our lives to produce fruit in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, we do read, That therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord beloved. And as we read that word, therefore, as many of you know, that Paul uses that word to connect this verse as we open up chapter 4 to, to the previous thought of chapter 3. And I've already mentioned what was that. Well, he's writing about that we belong to heaven to eagerly wait for the Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. He will subdue all things to himself. In other words, since one day we will have new glorious bodies, and people get confused about this. They get confused about the resurrection. If there's one question that I get uh, almost more than any other question is, the resurrection. And the reason is, is because there's been false teaching that has come into the church about soul sleep. And the resurrection, keep in mind, is when we get new resurrected bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, the Greeks, they had this negative um, view of the afterlife, of the resurrection. Some of them, even those who were believers, were denying about the resurrection of, of, that we will have as believers. So Paul writes that Jesus bodily resurrected from the grave. And because of that, we have the promise that we will be resurrected. So here's the thing about the resurrection. It's not only speaking of eternal life, but it's eternal life that we get new heavenly bodies. And when somebody dies in the Lord... Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. 
So when a Christian dies, when they breathe their last and they close their eyes, they immediately, their spirit goes to be with the Lord. And, and we will have a memorial service, and I've done many of them. And there's their body. Their body sleeps, but not their soul, okay? Their body gets put into the ground or cremated. And then at the time of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the twinkling of an eye, that that which is corruptible will be raised incorruptible, that which is mortal to immortality. At the rapture of the church, First Thessalonians chapter 4, the dead in Christ will rise first. What? The bodies that are in the ground that have gone on before us, they are with the Lord, but then the bodies will be raised and be joined to their spirit and will have new heavenly bodies. So there is no soul sleep. Again, there are those who will come along and say, our soul, our spirit sleeps until the resurrection. No, you're with the Lord. And at the resurrection, then we will be joined to our spirit where we have that new heavenly body that will last for all eternity. Remember that Jesus said to the thief on the cross, remember he turned to him and said, you'll be with me in paradise before the sun has set. He didn't say you're going to go into soul sleep for a couple thousand years. It was Paul at the end of his life that he would write that I, my departure's at hand in that second imprisonment. He had a departure. He knew that he was going somewhere, and that was to be with the Lord. So we know that Paul here is he's writing about the resurrected because Jesus Christ rose from the grave, that we are going to have new resurrected bodies as well. We're going to, to spend eternity with him. And that should help us to stand fast in the Lord and have joy in the Lord because of the hope that we have. We live in a day and age where we can become weighed down with just all the uncertainty that goes on in life. We, we look around us and we see all the things going on. We see what's going on in our culture. We can be concerned about what does it mean not only for us, but for our children, for our grandchildren. We look around and we see that things are not right. More people are anxious than ever before. And there's uncertainty before us. But we do have certainty as believers because we have an eternal hope. We have a living hope. Always remember that. We know that our Savior is going to come back again. And it will be at that time, as Isaiah writes, that righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. And because of that, we can stand fast in the Lord. We don't have to be moved by the world. We don't have to be shaken by all the hard circumstances and uncertainty or trials that we face in life. But we can plan ourselves and stand fast in the Lord because we have the promise of heaven. We're citizens of heaven. We have the promise of Jesus' return. We have the promise of new glorious bodies. And just as we've talked about, our source of joy in our hearts is from the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And because of that, we can stand fast in the Lord, be secure in the Lord, because he is our strength. He's our refuge. He's our present help. And we firmly plant ourselves on the rock, Jesus Christ. Remember that Jesus, when he ended the Sermon on the Mount, he said that you and I are to be the one that hears the sayings of mine, Jesus said, and does them. That's the one that's wise. It's like in the one who builds his house on a solid foundation on a rock. And when the rains come, the floodwaters rise, and the wind beats against that house, that house is able to stand. 
but do not be like the one who hears these saying of mine and does not do them as likened the one who's foolish, who builds their house upon the sand. And when the rains come and the floodwaters rise and the wind beats against that house, great is the fall of that house. So the question this morning for all of us, honesty, and the honesty of our hearts as we go before the Lord, what is it that you're building on? Are you building upon the promises of the Lord and your devotion to the Lord and knowing him and walking with him and walking in his ways? Or are you building upon the world and the world's philosophies and the world's ways? Because the storms come into all of our lives. So here he says, stand fast in the, the Lord. And notice again, the, as we've talked about, the affection that the apostle had for the Christians in Philippi. Twice in verse 1, he writes, beloved. Um, he longed for them. Uh, you are loved by me, Paul is saying. And you are my joy and my crown. So another question that we can ask ourselves this morning as we're going through God's word in just this one verse is, do brothers and sisters in the Lord give me joy? They should. I know that our families are very important. Our, our children, our, our relatives, our parents, our grandparents, they're very important. And I am very thankful for my family. I'm very thankful for God's grace and his working in my family. This uh, Yesterday, my youngest graduated uh, from UNC. And I thought, wow, that's our youngest. They're all through college. They're all done. I told Sue we should go on vacation. <laughs> but I'm very grateful for what God is doing. And, and I, I am very thankful for my family, even through the difficulties even through watching my mom suffer with dementia and declining. And, and it's been very, very difficult for us to, to see her go through that, through the agony and, and all of that that comes with it. But I am very, very grateful for my family. My family is a priority to me, very important to me, Sue and the kids and my mom and, and the rest of my family. But I do want to say this, that you are my family as well. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And I am very, very grateful for you that you have been a blessing to me. And I hope that you feel the same way. I mean, look at us. We all come together, three services, you know, people coming in and leaving, all with different backgrounds, different ethnic, you know, uh, groups, different economic statuses, different cultures, different experiences. And there's one thing that brings us together and it is we love Jesus. And I pray that we never lose sight of that, how blessed that we are, that we get to come together as the family of God. Because you see, there's a lot of people that don't have that. And you and I, as we come together, even as we come to the communion table here today, that there's a oneness that takes place. And so we can be thankful for one another. Uh, you know, sometimes I run into Christians, it's like, I don't wanna be with other Christians. I don't want to be in the church. They bother me. And, and I pray that none of us would have that mindset. We're all blessed and benefited by being here and encouraging each other, just loving each other, building each other up. And we're going to be together for all eternity. So be thankful. He says here, you're beloved and you're my crown. The Greek word for crown is a word that describes a crown that has been given to an athlete who has run the race. 
Paul says, you're my crown, you're my reward. And as he expresses his affection and love to them, we're going to see as we continue now, moving into verse 2, that he also had a concern for them as well. And he begins to express that concern. But before we read it, there's something that I think is worth considering and, and something for you and I in our lives to pray through and ask for God's help and discernment and wisdom. And that is how it is that we minister to others. You see, in our lives, when it comes to our children, when it comes to family members, when it comes to friends, comes to brothers and sisters in the Lord, that there are times that perhaps we need to bring correction to them. We need to bring rebuke to them. And we have to address things that are going on in someone's life that is not healthy. There may be their sin. There's carnality. Maybe in an attitude that's not right. Maybe they're bringing strife and division. There's pride. There's conceit and selfish ambition. All these things that we've discussed in our study going through this epistle. And I wanted us to notice something here. That Paul here... He expresses his affection for the believers. He cared for them. They would have a sense for that. You're my beloved. You're my crown, my joy. And and he here, as that is going on, he then addresses the problem that was taking place in the church. I just want to say this, and again, it takes wisdom and discernment. But if we want to minister effectively to others, that as we are called to bring correction to them or perhaps rebuke, there needs to be a right attitude. Not just going and blasting away at that person or those people and just being all harsh and negative and critical and then leaving them there. There needs to be a right heart and a right attitude. And I understand, we all experience this, that people can really push your buttons They can push my buttons. And it gets to the point of I've had it with you. And there are times where we have to be very firm and we have to be very direct. There's nothing wrong with that. But Lord, help me to go with the right heart and the right attitude. And to be able to say to them, listen, I care about you. I care about you as a brother or sister in Christ, as a family member, as a friend, whatever. And you're not doing well in the things of the Lord. And what you're doing is wrong. And what you're doing is hurtful. And what you're doing is having a negative effect on me and a lot of other people. And you don't just leave them in a place where they're just just corrected, but there's no encouragement whatsoever in the Lord. The Lord wants you to repent. He wants you to turn to him. We care about you. You need to change. And then as you come with the right attitude and heart, they don't feel like you're just attacking them. And sometimes they will. I understand that. Paul is saying in these few verses, in a few verses, he's going to say, let your gentleness be known to all men. So again, there's, there's no definite formula on how we do this. It is God's help and discernment and wisdom in every situation that we face where we're dealing with individuals. And here Paul is dealing with two individuals that were the source of division and strife in the church that he had great affection for. As we read in verse 2, that I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now again, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings in our study of this epistle, you recall that Paul was exhorting the believers there at Philippi to come together. 
to stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, verse 27 of chapter 1. And then moving into chapter 2, he continues to exhort them, and that is, you fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord in mind. And now here he says, stand fast in the Lord as we open the chapter. And I've got to address uh, these two individuals, these two women that have this conflict in the church. They're not of the same mind. And it was serious enough to where Paul names these names, these two ladies, that was having this negative effect on the church. And it must have been going on for a while for Paul to name them by name and to be stressing unity in the church. And notice that Paul, as he gives counsel to them, he says, I implore you, I plead with you, please, you Odia and you Syntyche, to get it together. He wasn't taking sides, but you were to be of one mind. Paul gives them this command publicly. They had forgotten what their common ground was, and that was Christ being servants of the Lord. Now, we have discussed going through this epistle, this is epistle theme of joy, joyous living. What will rob us of our joy? And what will rob us of our joy is when there is division, when there is strife, when there is conceit, selfish ambition, or being harsh. And we will see as we move on that the other thing that will rob us of our joy is being anxious. And I think a lot of people are anxious today. And we'll see what Paul says, what we are to do, uh, so we're not anxious. But that will rob us of our joy. And so the joy of the believers were being robbed with this division that was going on. He goes on and he addresses them that he says, I urge you, verse 3 also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So these two ladies have labored with me in the gospel. Now, just a little side note, because sometimes I'll have... Uh, those that will come up when I read this verse, or perhaps reading in Corinthians, where Paul talks about the roles of men and women in the church, headship, uh, in Ephesians, the other prison epistle, the roles of men and women in the marriage relationship. And they'll say that Paul had no respect for women. Uh, as you read, that wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. When we read about the, the headship, the authority of the men, the roles of men and women in the church, Paul didn't like women. He didn't respect them. Well, I totally disagree with that. Because number one, as Paul's writing, you know, about roles of men and women in the marriage relationship, remember that he's inspired by God to write about that. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, God's word put to the page. So it's coming from the Lord. It's not Paul's opinion. When it comes to the roles of men and women in the church, in the family, how he desires for men to be the leaders of the family, we'll talk more specifically about it. When we go into the book of Colossians, you don't want to miss it as we talk about the family. And those roles that God gives to men and women doesn't mean that God loves the man over the woman. It doesn't mean that men are, are superior over women. It doesn't mean that at all. It means we have different roles. But what happens is that culture comes along and the church is influenced by culture and, and begins to make comments that Paul didn't respect women or, or to do things that are unbiblical that God's word clearly gives us when it comes to men and women. Listen, we're one in Christ. But the Lord is the one that puts the family together and the church together. And that we can be ones that we can trust God's word. 
And the church is to influence culture, not to let culture influence the church. Too much of that going on today. So here, Paul, I believe, and we don't have time to build a, you know, a case on him respecting women, but just to say, for example, in Romans chapter 16, Paul greets all the saints in Rome. You can read that. He mentions several women that in that greeting, and he shows great appreciation. He shows great respect for their ministry, for their work in the gospel, for their ministry to him. I know for me that there are many women that they serve in this church. They're gifted. They, they are used of the Lord, and I very much appreciate your ministry. When it's teaching others, teaching the children, counseling other women, a part of the worship, um, you know, just helping with lady studies, helping in practical ways. We could not do what we do if it wasn't for your ministry, ladies. And it is precious before the sight of God and is very much appreciated by me. So please don't think that Paul's just picking on these two women to try to humiliate them. Remember, when this letter goes back to Philippi, these two names will be read in the congregation. And because of Paul naming names and because he spent so much time writing about unity in this epistle, I believe that this quarrel between these two individuals was serious. And it was really splitting up the church and, and the people were taking sides and it was such a distraction that the work of God was being stopped. When he wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians is a corrective letter. What is the first thing that Paul immediately addresses with all the problems that were going on in that church? He addresses the vision that was going on. So here at the church of Philippi, Paul does not tell us what is the cause of this division and what the dispute was over, only that it was a threat to the life of the church. And at one time he mentions, you too that are named here, labored with me in the Lord. But now the work has stopped, and this conflict is now having a negative effect on the church. And that's what dissension does. Fighting, division. You go from laboring for the Lord to putting all your energy and thoughts and time into that conflict, and there's a lot of wasted time, and there's a lot of hurt that takes place. And Paul asked in, in, in verse 3, in his asking, requesting, it is urgent. I ask that, that you, true companion, we don't know who exactly this true companion is, to help these ladies reconcile. But it was someone that Paul knew personally. It was someone that Paul trusted greatly to intervene with the problem that these two ladies were, were causing. Now, a little side note. There's some thought, and it's just a suggestion. The Bible doesn't say but some have suggested that perhaps a true companion is the Philippian jailer that I just spoke of earlier in the service of Acts chapter 16. But be that as it may, the true companion, I urge you, help those two women who labored with me in the gospel. They were instrumental in starting the church. Now they're instrumental in dividing the church. And you also, Clement. Now, we don't know exactly who he uh, was. There, uh, you know, there's nothing more written about him. There was a notable Clement in the early church who was believed to be a bishop of the Church of Rome. And we don't know if this is the same Clement, but probably not, because that was a name that was pretty common in the Roman Empire. But the question that we can ask ourselves as we read this, as Paul 
would, would name these two ladies causing the vision, uh, name the true companion and Clements and the others of you laboring, uh, fellow workers as well. Those of you who are not all caught up in this, you pray, you help in this dispute, you encourage these two individuals to be of the same mind. But the question that we can ask ourselves again in the honesty of our hearts is this. If your Christian life, your Christian service, could be summed up in a short sentence like verse 3. How would it be summed up? Would it be likened to Euodia and Syntyche? Causing division, causing strife, causing difficulty, negative effect on others? Or would it be like the true companion or Clement that comes along and helps and builds people up and encourages I think that all of you, I hope all of you, would want to be known as that. And as he is writing here, he he says that something interesting. He reminds them that their names are in the book of life. It's important for us to remember that our names are in the book of life. That we remember that we have the hope of heaven. In Luke chapter 10, when the 70 went out two by two and they come back, They come back all excited, and they say to Jesus, Man, uh, we work miracles. We cast out demons. And Jesus' response was a very interesting response. He says, Don't rejoice in that, that miracles came from you, that spirits were subject to you. But this is what you are to rejoice in, that your names are written in heaven. And if there is one reason that we can rejoice each and every day, of our lives, it is the fact that our names are written in the book of life in heaven and that we are not going to hell. There are things that we rejoice in and what God is doing in our lives, how he works through us, and we can rejoice in those things. But the one thing that we can truly rejoice every single day and keep that joy in our hearts is to know that we're going to go be with him and we're going to heaven. I was reading earlier in the week, Revelation chapter 20. I've read that chapter a thousand times. And every time I read Revelation chapter 20, it is very, very sobering to me. And it is when that time after the millennium reign of Jesus Christ, the the unrighteous dead are resurrected. They will stand before the great white throne judgment. And their names are not written in the book of life. And they will be cast into outer darkness into the lake of fire for all eternity. Hell is real. Now, you and I as believers, we will not stand at the great white throne judgment. It is for those who have rejected Jesus in the gospel. And they will be judged. Their name's not in the book of life. That's when eternity becomes very real. The reality of heaven and hell, folks, listen. Don't get so sidetracked in your walk with the Lord and in your service to the Lord that you forget what's important. And that is that Jesus has saved you and he's forgiven you. And you are to give that message to as many people as you can because heaven is real, but so is hell. And we can get so caught up in life And the stuff of this world and the quarrels and 
the business that we have to do and the cares of life, and even in ministry, that we can forget about rejoicing, that our names are in the book of life, and we forget about how we've been forgiven and we need to forgive others and how God has extended his grace to us and we need to extend grace to others that continue on laboring for the Lord because he is coming back soon, I believe. And when we keep a right perspective, then the division and the quarreling and the strife begins to just fall apart. When we remember the commandment of Philippians chapter 2, that do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let's each esteem others better than himself, looking out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And you do all things without complaining and disputing, and you shine in this dark world as lights in the world. And be about the kingdom. And rejoice. Because your names are written in the book of life. And then he says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Amazing. Paul's sitting in a Roman jail telling us to rejoice. It's the commandment of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Keep on rejoicing is what we are being told. And we can say, I can't do that. Because of the hurt or the difficult circumstances that I'm going through. And I understand that. I understand that. I read David in the Psalms, how he says, How my soul is cast down, oh my Lord. And, and his pillow is soaked with, with tears. But he would then, as you read those Psalms, begin to get his focus on the Lord. And the love of the Lord and the faithfulness of the Lord. And he began to rejoice in the Lord. Paul was in a difficult situation. He's chained to a Roman guard. He, he doesn't know if he's going to be set free or he's going to be sentenced to death. And he writes here, rejoice in the Lord again, I say rejoice. And notice that Paul, in these verses that we have read, the first four verses, that he says, number one, verse one, stand firm in the Lord. Verse two, live in harmony in the Lord. And then verse four, rejoice in the Lord. And you see, apart from the Lord, we cannot stand firm. Apart from the Lord, we cannot live in harmony with others. Apart from the Lord, we will not have that, that joy inexpressible in our hearts. And as we do look to him and rejoice in the Lord, I don't rejoice in the circumstances, but I'm going to rejoice in you, Lord. And as you rejoice and keep on rejoicing, you will have that joy that will be in your heart, just a sense of peace and assurance that, Lord, you're there with me and your promises are true for me. Maybe you feel imprisoned today. Maybe the future seems uncertain to you. But as you go to the Lord and as you love the Lord and believe in him, you know that he is the source of your joy. And you can rejoice because your names are written in the book of life. Because he's coming back. And guess what? You're coming back with them. And you're going to rule and reign with them. This is reality. And you see, Paul's not just telling us to walk around snapping your fingers and tapping your toes all day long and just be happy. It's amazing how many teachings I've heard. God just wants you to be happy. And I think all of us were for happiness, right? But it is hard to be happy each and every day consistently because of the hardships of life and the difficulties that come our way. God has so much more for you, and that is to have joy. Something much richer and deeper, and that is the assurance that he's with you, a peace that is in you. 
strength that, that is given to you as you just keep your eyes on him and as you stand on the promises of the Lord, standing firm in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord will cause you to stand firm in him. As you're gentle with others, be thankful and keep from murmuring and complaining. And as you do that, as we're being told here in this epistle, that joy will be present in your heart. And then let your gentleness, verse 5, be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So the Greek word here for gentleness is graciousness, that you are reasonable and considerate towards others. It's the opposite of self-seeking and contention and being harsh and tearing others down. And your gentleness is to be known to all men. And these two individuals that Paul mentions here probably were not doing that. They went it their own way, probably trying to draw people to their side. They, they were so consumed on what was going on that let's, let's see what we can do to, to press our point or get the next dig in or how can I get at them. And they were hard to each other and with others. And Paul's command, which is the Lord's command, is to be gentle to all men, not just those that we know and like, but to all men. And being gentle is the person who will let the Lord fight the battles in their life and know that God is in control. And I can be gentle to all men. Why? Because the Lord's coming is at hand. It is near. Paul's already said that we're to eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming to this world that is passing away. And all the things in this life that rob us of our joy, our harmony and unity, all those things are going to pass away. And they won't be an issue. Listen, the Lord is at hand. So let your light shine in the darkness. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Rejoice in the Lord. Trust him in this world that can really weigh on you and me. And we don't have to be anxious as we will talk about that next time. You don't want to miss it. So, Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word given to us. Uh, it's so important for us to be established in your truth so we can have joy, so we can stand firm. That we keep our eyes, even in the other prison epistle he writes, keep our eyes on the things above, not just the things of this world. To have that eternal perspective. Because you are coming. And we are citizens of heaven. And we have the promise of the resurrection. And the promise that we're going to rule and reign with you. So that should cause us to rejoice each and every day. And as we come to the communion table, listen, the communion table is for the Christian. It's not just if you belong to the church. If you're a member of the church, we don't even have an official membership. But if you're a believer, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. As we hold the elements, remembering his suffering, his body being broken and bloodshed. And this new covenant that we belong to. But if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that he is your salvation. Just as we said, hell is real, heaven is real. And the way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. The way to the Father is through him. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And coming and realizing that a perfect, holy God in the person of Jesus Christ came and died for us sinners. That's amazing. 
and he died on the cross for your sins that you might have life. As you call out on the name of Jesus, as you repent from the direction you're going, repent of your sins and turn to Jesus and ask him to save you, forgive you, to be your Lord and Savior. You can do that right now. You can pray, Jesus, I come, a sinner, and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on that cross for me, that you're alive, risen from the grave, and I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for for bringing me into the family of God, making me a citizen of heaven, that my name is written in the book of life. Thank you for that promise. And I do want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. And as the communion elements are now handed out, I I hope that we would just have that, that heart of worship and awe of what Jesus did for us as we hold the elements and then we'll partake of them together. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Let's take of the bread together.
Father, we are thankful that the creator of the universe who sent his son to die for us didn't have to, but you proved your love for us. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us, his body beaten in ways that we can't fully understand. It was the lamb led to the slaughter. And in that upper room, Jesus, in the same manner, also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me as we take of the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We know you're coming back, Lord. So help us keep it at eternal perspective. The promise that is before us of eternity in heaven. Names written in the book of life. Of the new resurrected bodies. Of the return of our Lord. And we get to rule and reign with you. Help us have joy in the midst of the difficulties be a light in the midst of the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.